Galatians 6. Can you hear me? Okay. 6 through 10. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that they will also reap. For the one who sows to their own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The word of the Lord. So um, we are actually coming into the home stretch in our series on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. And as we remind ourselves every week, this letter is all about one big question, and the question is, what is the gospel? And especially as we've been nearing the latter part of the letter, one of the things that Paul has been showing us is not just what the gospel is, but how it actually makes a practical difference in our lives. How does the gospel change us? What kind of um, effect does it have in the way we live our lives from day to day? Now, this passage we just read uh, actually shows us how the gospel helps us when life gets hard. So if you notice in verse 9, Paul said, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The Bible is incredibly honest and realistic about the fact that life is hard. Life will knock you down. Life is difficult. Life will make it incredibly easy to feel weary, to feel like you want to just give up and not take another step. How can you keep going? Life is hard. The Bible is very realistic about that. So, you know, on the one hand, we look at the world. The world is a mess, is it not? I mean, we see... There's terrorism in Barcelona. There's terrorism in Charlottesville. There's racism, hatred, division all over the world. Our, our world is a mess. And even though we think, oh, you know, humanity's getting better, we're making progress, and then there's always something that happens to shock us back to reality that the world we live in is an absolute mess and that evil feels so relentless and it's easy to give up. It's easy to grow weary. But it's not just the world, is it? It's our own personal lives. Individually speaking, life is hard. It may not be hard for you right now, but it's been hard in the past or, or it will be hard again in the future. There will be a time in your life, in your future, when life is going to become difficult. So difficult, so challenging, so heartbreaking that you're going to wonder how you can keep going. Where are you going to get the strength to keep on walking? Life is hard. Life is difficult. This passage helps to show us where we get the strength to keep on going. So that when the world knocks you down, when life knocks you down, where are you going to get the resources? Where are you going to get the strength you need to stand back up and keep on going? This passage shows us. And even though it doesn't use the word, this passage is all about hope. I've been thinking about this all week as I've meditated on this ultimate hope, living hope, and how it changes our lives. Now, why is that so important? Well, let me tell you a story. Um, one of my earliest memories was when I was in preschool. I, I couldn't have been more than four or five years old. 
And I remember one morning they gathered us around for story time. And I remember very clearly sitting on the ground and the teacher was reading the story and then she was holding up this picture book that had the pictures that went along with the story. And the story was all about a little boy named Johnny. And it was about his life. And so, you know, I'm a little boy. Johnny's a little boy. I'm immediately relating to Johnny. I'm identifying with Johnny so that everything that happens to Johnny in the story, I feel like it's happening to me. I'm relating. And the story was all about Johnny's life, how he's growing up and getting older. And I mean, I even remember the, the picture of him as an old man. He's got this long white beard. Everything that's happening to Johnny is happening to me. But then something happened at the end of the story that I wasn't prepared for. The story said, and then Johnny died. <laughs> I'm like, what? I don't know, you know how most people come to an awareness of their own mortality. I suspect it's rather gradual. But for me, it all happened in one terrifying instant when I was five years old <laughs> in preschool. And I, I was traumatized. And I, I was so terrified that I actually stopped talking to anybody. I didn't know what to say. I was, just, I was that traumatized by it. My pe the teachers didn't know what was going on with me. They were trying to, like, he's not talking. What's going on with this kid? They called my mom and she took me home. I couldn't even tell her what was going on. I, I didn't even have the words to express the terror that I was feeling. That the reality of my own inevitable death paralyzed me with fear. And just to be clear, you know, I didn't grow up in a religious home, so my parents never talked about God. They didn't talk about a world beyond this world. So as far as I knew, at five years old, there is no God. This world is all there is. And when you die, it's lights out, extinction. That was my reality, and it had a profound impact on my experience of life that day. Now, here's why I'm telling the story. If you're about to fall asleep, I'm going to tell you right now what the whole sermon is about. The way you look at life determines the way you live your life. The lens you use to look at life determines the way you live your life. In other words, whatever you believe most deeply about ultimate reality, about your ultimate future, whatever you believe most deeply about that is going to have a profound impact on the way you experience life, on the things you value, the decisions you make, what you focus your time on, everything. The lens you use to look at life determines the way you live your life. And so when we look at our lives and we look at lives that are difficult, lives that are hard, a world that is a mess, a world that's difficult, what we need more than anything is a hope that's going to enable us to stand up in the face of that and keep on going. This passage shows us where we get it. The lens you use to look at life determines the way you live your life. If you want to find a way of living that gives you strength, you need to find a way of looking at life that gives you hope. And this passage helps us find it by seeing two things. I want to just look at two headings this morning. We're going to see, first, what does Paul mean when he talks about the flesh and the spirit? And secondly, what does Paul mean when he's talking about sowing and reaping? Okay? Those are the two big things we're looking at this morning. And the first is this. What is Paul talking about when he's talking about the flesh and the spirit? If you've been with us throughout this series... One of the things we've seen over and over and over again is that the gospel is utterly unique among every religion, every worldview, every philosophy, every system of ethics, every approach to life. The gospel is utterly unique among all of those. So every other religion says essentially, do good, try really hard, and you will find salvation. 
It doesn't even matter how you define salvation at this point. Every other religion says that salvation is something you achieve, okay? The gospel is the exact opposite of that. The gospel does not say, um, you know, be a good person or God will judge you. (laughs) The gospel doesn't tell us about something we need to do. The gospel tells us about something that's already been done for us. It doesn't say be good or God will judge you. It says Jesus was already judged for you. The essence of the gospel is not be a good person or God will get you. It's God was already saving you through Jesus' work on the cross. You were already free from that. It is the exact opposite of every other religious system, every other way or approach to life. It says that salvation is not something we achieve. It's something we receive. Now, here's what's so confusing about this passage that we just read. In verses 7 and 8, Paul says, God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that will they also reap. For the one who sows to their own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, it sounds like what Paul is saying here is the same thing as every other religion. Don't sin or God will judge you. Be a good person and you will go to heaven. That's what it sounds like he's saying, but it can't be because if that is what he's saying, then he's essentially contradicting everything he's already been saying in the letter up until this point. That can't be it. So what is he saying here? Well, the first thing that we see is that Paul is drawing a contrast between the flesh and the spirit. These are two different lenses, two different ways of looking at life. Now, he started this back in chapter 5 talking about the flesh and the spirit. What is the flesh? We've been talking about this. It's easy to hear that word and think that, well, the flesh, that's referring to a desire, a bad desire for physical bodily things like sex and alcohol, and that we need to be really careful to avoid those things, and that if we are meticulous and, and keep all the rules and avoid those bad physical things like that, then God will love us and accept us and take us to heaven when we die. But that is not a biblical definition of the flesh. When the Bible uses the word flesh, it's talking about potentially a couple of different things. Um, One one thing is that when the Bible uses the word flesh, sometimes all it's talking about is human beings, um, people, okay? Just, you know, not bad, but just limited. We're finite. We're we're limited as human beings. We're weak. It's the flesh. It's, It's not bad, just limited human beings. But other times... The word flesh is used to describe an approach to life. Over the past several weeks, we've been calling it an operating principle. This week, I'd like to suggest that we can also look at it as a lens. It's it's a way of looking at life. It's like having different sunglasses with different colors. You know, you you put different sunglasses on, and depending on the the color of the sunglasses, the world is going to look very differently to you depending on what color sunglasses you're wearing. So the flesh is a lens, all right? It's a way of looking at life that says the things your heart most deeply desires, things like love, acceptance, um, meaning, significance, security, fulfillment, status, all of those things. The flesh is a lens that says all of those things your heart most deeply desires, the only way you can get them is through your own self-effort. That's the only way you'll ever be able to get them. And that's why it's called the flesh. It's because it's focused on human self-effort. We want to be in control, don't we? Which means that we want to be our own lords. And we want to be able to achieve all of the things that we want most deeply out of life, which means we also want to be our own saviors. The, The flesh is a lens. It's the default 
mode of every human heart, the default inclination of every human heart to want to be its own Lord and Savior. We want to be in control of our life. We want to achieve all the things we most desperately want. Now, this is a very different um, view of the flesh than simply a legalistic avoidance of physical things like food, sex, and drink, isn't it? This is very different. In fact, throughout the whole letter, Paul has been saying that if you think by keeping the rules, if you think that by avoiding things like sex and food and drink and by being a really good moral person, if you think that by doing all that you can earn God's love and acceptance, that's a mindset. That's a way of looking at life. He says, that's the flesh. It's a lens for looking at life. The way you look at life determines the way you live your life. And when you understand that, you realize that you don't have to be a religious person to live according to the flesh because our whole world is organized according to this lens. So for instance, at a religious level, the flesh would say, well, the only way to get the love and acceptance of God is to earn it by being a really, really good person. Or at a secular, non-religious level, the flesh would say, if you want to find success or happiness or fulfillment, if you want to become a self-actualized person or an authentic person, or if you want to try really hard to make the world a better place, the only way any of those things happen is through human self-effort. That's the flesh at work in our, our world. Now listen, if there is no God and this world is all there is, then that lens, that approach to life actually makes really good sense, doesn't it? Because at the end of the day, our hope really is in ourselves, if that's true. But do you see how this works? Looking at life through the lens of the flesh doesn't really, it really doesn't have anything to do with whether you believe in God or not. God may be an intellectual reality in your life, or he may not be. The essence of the flesh is not whether or not God is an intellectual reality in your life. It's when God is not a functional reality in your life. That means that even if you believe in God, there are going to be times in life when, when all the things of this world, your life, is going to feel more real to you. The functional reality of your life will be the things that are right up in your face. So you say, you may believe in the love of God, but your relationship problems are going to feel more real to you. Or you may believe in the approval of God, but you got criticized, and that's going to feel more real to you. Or you may say that you believe in the care and protection of God, but work and money problems, those are going to feel more real to you. Or you may believe that you're created in the image of God, but your weight problems, your look problems are going to feel more real to you. What is your functional reality? What is most real to your heart? The flesh is a lens for looking at life that says, there may be a God, there may not be a God. But either way, if there is a God, he doesn't really have my best interests at heart. And if I'm really going to get the deepest desires of my heart, the only way that's going to happen is if I make it happen. Human self-effort, human self-reliance, the lens you use to look at life determines the way you live your life. But look at what Paul contrasts the flesh with. The flesh is one lens. The other lens is the spirit. And when he says that, he means the Holy Spirit of God himself. In other words, Paul is saying there's another lens for looking at life. There's more to reality than meets the eye. So just as there's a physical reality that is at work in this world, Paul is saying, so also there is a spiritual reality that is very powerfully at work in this world. You can't see it, but it's there. There is a spiritual reality, and it's right there that we really bump up against our late modern Western culture. 
Because our culture says, come on, spiritual reality, give me a break. There is no spiritual reality. There is no God. This world is all there is. Grow up and get rid of your fairy tales. And I think it's at that point that we really have to push back a little bit and say, wait a minute, not so fast. Because here's the thing, the, the universe that we live in, it's a very interesting place. On the one hand, this universe that we live in is filled with all kinds of daily cares and concerns that are so concerning, so anxiety-producing in our lives that essentially God is not a functional reality in our life. But on the other hand, the universe is also filled with all kinds of things that, that God has filled creation with, all kinds of pressure points, things that press on us and whisper to us, tell us, speak to us, remind us that there actually is a reality at work in this world that we can't really see. So for instance, um, one of the things that um, our modern Western culture puts a tremendous amount of importance on are all kinds of moral values, things like human rights, or freedom of speech, or democracy, or caring for the needs of the poor and the weak and the marginalized, things like that. Here's the thing, you know, almost nobody in our culture doubts that. And it's important to say almost nobody, um, because there are people that doubt that, and we've seen that very clearly displayed for us. But almost nobody in our culture doubts the reality of those things. And yet, where do those moral values come from? There was an article just yesterday in Vox magazine about the famous German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, and I got, I'll admit, very excited when I saw the article because um, sometimes I'll talk about Nietzsche here at church, and I always wonder when I mention him, do people know, do people care? You know, it seems so kind of like, why are you talking about this guy? Um, apparently, uh, a lot of these white supremacists are very enamored with the writings of Friedrich Nietzsche, although they have very badly misunderstood him. But here's the thing and the point of the article. Nietzsche was an atheist, all right? Probably the most famous atheist of all time. And he was certainly the first atheist who was willing to really wrestle with the implications of an atheistic worldview. And one of the big points in the article was that Nietzsche was constantly pointing out how so many of our modern, liberal, humanistic values are the direct result of Christianity's impact on our world. So at one point, the article says this, when Nietzsche famously declared that God is dead, he meant that science and reason had progressed to the point where we could no longer justify belief in God. And that meant that we could no longer justify the values rooted in that belief. So his point was that we had to reckon with a world in which there is no foundation for our highest values. In other words, Nietzsche was constantly talking to his fellow atheists who had all of these moral values that they cherished. And in effect, Nietzsche was saying to them, grow up and put away your fairy tales. The values that you cherish so deeply only make sense within a Christian framework. And you can't get rid of the framework and hang on to these values. It's intellectually dishonest. You know what Nietzsche was saying? The same thing that Paul is saying in verse 7. God is not mocked. In other words, if you say that God doesn't exist and yet your life is filled with all kinds of moral values that say, oh no, he does exist, then you're trying to mock God. It can't be done. You know, there are a lot of atheist philosophers um, in our world that have worked really hard to try to create some kind of groundwork or framework for an absolute binding morality yet without God, and all of them fall short. Do you know why? Nietzsche would say to them, God cannot be mocked. 
Now, I think it's really important to understand something. It's very difficult to find places where both the Bible and Friedrich Nietzsche agree about something. So if we do find something, we should probably pay attention to that. When Paul talks about the spirit as opposed to the flesh, he's saying there is a spiritual reality at work in this world. There is a reality beyond the reality that we can see or sense with our, um, with our empirical tools of collecting data. So one of my favorite stories about this is actually from 2 Kings chapter 6. It's about the prophet Elisha. And he was in a city, and the city was surrounded by an enemy army. So that when he looked at the hills surrounding the city, there was all these horses and chariots of the Syrian army surrounding the city. And Elisha had a servant with him, and the servant was looking at this army, and he was terrified. And Elisha looks at his servant and says, do not be afraid. And the servant looks at him and says, what are you talking about? Can't you see these horses and chariots? And Elisha prays, and he says, oh, Lord, open his eyes so that he can see. And it said, the Lord opened his eyes, and all of a sudden the servant saw the hills filled with horses and chariots of fire. There is a reality beyond the reality that we see. And you may say that's a fairy tale, but if you say that's a fairy tale, then you have to say that, that our sense of, of a, some kind of absolute binding morality is also a fairy tale. We know that's not true. So why would we say the other thing can't be true? There is a reality, a spiritual reality. There is a being, a God who created you, who loves you, and who has your best interests at heart. What is your functional reality? What, what is most real to your heart? Paul is saying there are really only two lenses, two approaches, two options available for us. The lens you use to look at life determines the way you live your life. There are only two lenses available, the flesh or the spirit, and whichever one of those lenses you adopt is going to have a profound impact on the way you live your life. And that actually leads us to our last point. We've just seen what Paul means by the flesh and the spirit, but, but next we have to see what does he mean by sowing and reaping? What does he mean by that? Because now that we've seen the difference between these two lenses, the flesh and the spirit, now we're actually in a position to ask the question, what does Paul mean when he says in verses 7 and 8, whatever one sows, that will they also reap. For the one who sows to their own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. What does that mean? Well, I hope by now it's clear that Paul does not mean be a good person or God will get you. This, that's the lens of the flesh, that salvation comes through human self-effort. So what does this really mean? Well, think about it. It's an agricultural image so that whatever you sow, that also you will reap. In other words, if you put a tomato seed in the ground, you're going to get a tomato plant. You know, whatever you put in the ground, that's what's going to come up. Whatever you sow, that's what you reap. So it's talking about outcomes, right? And while, yes, at a certain level... Outcomes include the things that happen to you. The focus in this passage is not so much on the things that happen to you as it is on the kind of person that you become. That's what Paul's focus is on here. In other words, every day you're making choices and the choices you make, the actions you take, they are shaping you to become a particular kind of person. So that, for instance, Paul says, if you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. Now, that word corruption, that's actually a really good way of translating that word because, you know, when a body dies, it starts decaying, it starts rotting, right? It starts falling apart. Corruption, that's what this word means. It means rotting, it means falling apart, it means disintegrating. 
Paul is saying that if you sow to the flesh, it does something to you. It actually disintegrates you. It, it, it results in corruption in your mode of being as a human being. So for instance, if you say a lie today, it makes it all that much easier to tell a lie again tomorrow. So that eventually you're not just somebody who's doing dishonest things, you've actually become a dishonest person. Or if you, um, if you take advantage of someone today, it makes it all that much easier to take advantage of someone again tomorrow so that eventually you're not just somebody who does selfish things, you're somebody who has become a selfish person. Do you see how it works? On the one hand, Paul is saying, you know, if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. But on the other hand, Paul is saying, if you sow to the spirit, you will reap eternal life. Now we have to pause on that word eternal life for just a moment because that can be a very misguiding word the way we would hear it. When Paul talks about eternal life, he's not only talking about length of life, he's talking about a certain quality of life. When Paul talks about eternal life, it's easy to hear that phrase and think, oh, Paul's talking about, you know, one day we're going to go to heaven and we're going to be floating around in some disembodied reality. That's not what he's talking about. We get an image of, of floating away to heaven. That is not what Paul means when he's talking about eternal life. The phrase eternal life, it's interesting. You could almost literally translate it the life of the ages. Specifically the life of the eternal age. And that's important because if you go all the way back to the very beginning of the letter to the Galatians, in the very beginning of the first chapter, Paul's introducing the letter and he says right at the beginning, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Same word, the age. But he said at the beginning, there's an evil age and it's, that's the age that characterizes the world we live in right now. But he's saying that one day there's gonna be an eternal age that's gonna come and that's the world wants, God wants to get us to in the future, okay? This present evil age is contrasted with the eternal age to come. Now, what does that mean? It means that it means that God is not destroying this world and carrying us away to some disembodied heaven. It means that, that God is not destroying this world and carrying us away to some disembodied reality. God is actually renewing this world and making a home for, some, for himself here in this world to be with us. It's not God destroying earth and carrying us away to heaven. It's God renewing the earth by uniting it with heaven. Because what have we seen? There's, there's this contrast. There's this war, really, between the flesh and the spirit. We see those things that, as being at odds with each other, and they really are. Because the flesh, that principle, that lens of looking at life, is the, is the thing that results in all the hatred and the division and the hostility and the violence that we see at work in the world. It's at odds with the world of the spirit. But the Bible says it was not always so, and it will not always be that way. That one day, think about the world you yearn for. Think about the world you long for. I think we all long for the same thing, a world where there's no more, as Revelation 21 says, no more tears, mourning, death, crying, or pain. A world where there's no more racism or hatred or division or hostility or violence or poverty or war or affliction. That's the world we all want. The Bible is saying that's the world that's coming. 
That's the world that's coming. And God's goal for us, his vision for us, is not to destroy this world and and carry us away to some heaven. His goal is to renew this world and unite flesh and the spirit in this world. Because right now they're at war, but it's not always going to be that way. One day the world will be reconciled. Flesh and spirit will be reconciled. We will live in the world we long for. Paul is saying that's what he means when he talks about eternal life. So that when he says, if you sow to the Spirit, you will reap eternal life, what he means is you will become the kind of person who is perfectly, totally, utterly at home in that world. You will become the kind of person who belongs to that world. Nobody has ever put this any better than C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. Here's how he puts it. People often think of Christianity as a kind of bargain, in which God says, if you keep a lot of rules, I'll reward you. And if you don't, I'll do the other thing. I do not think that is the best way of looking at it. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part that chooses, into something a little different from what it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us is at each moment progressing to the one state Or the other. Whatever you sow, that you will also reap. It's not so much about what happens to you, you know, like karma, as it is about the kind of person that you become. The lens you use to look at life determines the way you live your life. And that brings us back to hope. Because if your ultimate hope is in the flesh, that is in your own ability to to be your own Lord and Savior, to be in control over your life, then your inevitable inability to control every aspect of your life will eventually lead you to despair because at some point, life is gonna crush you. At some point, life is gonna pull the rug out from underneath you. And if your hope is in yourself, as Paul says, you will grow weary, you will give up, you will lose hope. You know, um, one of my former pastors speaks pretty frequently about a woman named Beatrice Webb. Beatrice Webb was a social activist in London back in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, In fact, Beatrice Webb was somebody who was responsible for creating the whole British welfare system. I mean, she was somebody who gave her whole life to trying to make the world a better place, trying to be a good person, trying to do the right thing, trying to make the world the place we want it to be. And she kept a diary and in 1925, she wrote a rather amazing entry in her dying she, diary. She'd been looking back on things that she had written in previous diaries, and she started to realize that, well, here's what she wrote. She says this, in my diary of 1890, I wrote, I staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. Now, 35 years later, I realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us and how little they seem to change, like greed for wealth or power, and how mere social machinery will never change that. We must ask better things from human nature, but will we get a response? No amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail, and unless we curb the bad impulse, how will we get better social institutions? Now, here's what she's saying. 
Think about it. This is somebody who, who gave 35 years of her life to try to make the world a better place. But at the end of those 35 years, she was weary. She felt like giving up. She began with so much optimism, and yet she ended up losing hope. Why is that? It's because human beings don't have the power to actually make the world the place it's supposed to be. And when Beatrice Webb was faced with the inevitable evil that asserts itself in this world, the powers of evil are too strong, and nothing we can do, she says, is of any avail. Hope in the flesh will crush you. It will lead you to despair. But do you know what the Christian hope will do for you? What is the Christian hope? It's the world to come. Not a disembodied reality, but a renewed world. The world we long for, a world of no more tears, death, mourning, crying, or pain. A world of no more racism, terrorism, evil, hostility, violence, hatred, war. That world. God is going to renew this world, not destroy it, but renew it. So do you realize what that does for you? On the one hand, thank you, Rachel. On the one hand, this hope um, frees you from the pressure of having to bring ultimate change to the world. As if, you know, we in our own human power are going to make the world the place it's supposed to be. It frees us from the pressure of that. But on the other hand, it actually encourages us not to bring ultimate change, but to work for meaningful change, even though it might be small change. You know what this means? The, the Christian hope is the only hope that can actually free you from being naively triumphalistic about our power to change the world. It makes you a realist. You're not naive anymore. You know this world is a broken place, and yet at the same time, it also frees you from being crushed by despair because you know that one day God really is going to renew this world. You become a realist, but the most optimistic kind of realist. The Christian hope is the only hope that can actually give that to you. Now, <laughs> Paul says, therefore, that we can not grow weary of doing good, yet instead we can get out in the world and actually work for good. Not ultimate change, but meaningful change. In due season, we will reap if we do not give up. The Christian hope is the only hope that will give you the strength to do that. But here's the question. How do you actually get that hope in your life? It's one thing to talk about it, one thing to say, oh, look, how wonderful it is. There's a world to come. God is gonna bring that world. How do you actually get that hope in your life? The lens you use to look at life determines the way you live your life. What has your focus? What lens are you using to look at life? Sowing to the Spirit means that, that, that you look at life through the lens of the cross. That you look at your personal history, you look at the history of the world, that you look at everything, everything in the world, everything in your life is now filtered through the lens of the cross. Because what happened on the cross you know, it's, it's no coincidence, by the way, that Paul uses this imagery here of sowing a seed in the ground. Because in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, Jesus was talking about his own death on the cross, and he said, truly, truly, I say to you that unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it does die, it bears much fruit. He was talking about his death. In other words, Jesus is the seed who fell into the earth and died in order that he might bear fruit in your life and in this world because who is Jesus? Think about this. Jesus is God. That means he is infinite, eternal, glorious, all-powerful spirit. And yet Jesus left the realm of the spirit to enter the world of the flesh. 
the, the world of the flesh and the world of the spirit are at odds. And we think that it, it's always going to be that way. So our desire is to escape the world of the flesh into the world of the spirit. And Jesus says, no, I left the world of the spirit and took on a body of flesh in order to reconcile these two things, in order to make them one, in order to, to reunify these two things. Jesus brings them both together in his incarnation in the world. But on the cross, Jesus was ripped apart. Jesus was disintegrated. Jesus was corrupted. Jesus was rotting away on the cross so that you could be renewed, so that you could be made whole, so that you could be put back together again. Everything we're hoping for, everything we long for is ours on the cross. The lens you use to look at life depends the way you live your life. Are you looking at him on the cross? Do you see him on the cross doing that for you? It's so easy to think spiritual reality is not real. It's a fairy tale. But friends, God has left the world of the spirit to come into the world of the flesh, and that reality has come into our lives now through the cross of Jesus Christ. What is hope? You know, when we think about the word hope in our modern-day world, we think hope is more or less wishful thinking, right? Hope means ignoring reality. Well, it doesn't look like things are going to turn out very well, but I hope against hope that things will actually turn out all right in the end. Hope is wishful thinking in our vocabulary, but the Bible uses the word hope, and it means something the complete opposite of that. Hope is not ignoring reality in the Bible. Hope is paying attention to reality, ultimate reality, the ultimate reality that God left the world of the spirit to come into this world of the flesh so that through his flesh and blood, historical reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has ushered the world to come into this world. That is reality. That is ultimate reality. And the more you look at that, the more you pay attention to that, the more you focus on that and use that as the lens through which you look at life, the more you meditate on that and make that your ultimate reality, the more that lens will transform you. It'll transform everything about your life. The lens you use to look at life determines the way you live your life. Look at Jesus on the cross, transforming everything. Take that into your heart. Look at it. Hope for it. Work for it. It will transform you. It'll transform the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this world we see is not the way it's always going to be. We know, Father, when we look at this world, it's not the way it's supposed to be, but we praise you that there is a world to come and that you have shown us that world, the death and resurrection of our Savior Jesus. We pray even now that you would help us to look at Jesus, make him our focus, our lens, our hope, so that that hope would transform our lives and enable us to move back out into the world to be agents of meaningful change that point to the ultimate change that only you will bring, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.